When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Corp is coming in, gold in a world record. The birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. ball in test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Yes! Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by the first woman to compete at five Olympic Games. Natalie Cook is a beach volleyball legend who won gold and bronze at Olympic level in a glorious career that started indoors before switching to the sand. Cook is a member of the Order of Australia and has a place in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. She's an author a mum, an award-winning wellness coach, and a motivational speaker who runs her own business. To be honest, there's not much she can't do. Nat, hello, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, we're speaking to you only five and a half weeks out from the Olympic Games, Tokyo 2021. Do, do the memories come flooding back for you at, at times like these? Absolutely. Uh, I literally am feeling every emotion, um, every piece of uh, anxiety and doubt and fear and confidence that goes with it at this time. And especially watching the beach volleyballers, I clearly have a bit to do with them. I'm just trying to give them a little bit of compassion, a bit of nurturing, because Mm. this is the toughest time of the Olympic cycle in general, let alone the fact they've had to go an extra 12 months. Well, I was going to ask you that. It'd be a time of anxiety at the best of times. I mean, how difficult is it for you to relate to this current Australian team, who have obviously found themselves in unprecedented situation after unprecedented situation over the last 18 months? months or so? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine a little bit, but clearly no idea of, of the roller coaster of emotions from is the Olympics cancelled to is it postponed to even, you know, the recent rumbles about uh, Japan being uncomfortable with it being there and the IOC saying we're 100% going ahead and, it, and and athletes not being able to get to qualification events. We've just seen baseball withdraw from its qualification. We've also had some diving athletes that weren't able to get there to qualify. So it's just must be we've seen them build resilience they've all found silver linings and i've told them they've got to now turn that silver into gold as 
as they get towards Tokyo. But what you'll also see is when the bubble is burst, so when the performance is over, we might see a range of emotions that that we've never really seen come publicly before. And look, it's impossible not to have enormous empathy for this, for this group who have been put through the absolute ringer in the build-up to these games. I mean, they're underfunded, we know that. They have limited financial security, as we say, at the best of times in any normal year. Do you have a grasp of how much this has been compounded by COVID-19? Yeah, the Australian Sports Foundation did a great survey at the start of this year to really see the impacts of COVID on the athletes. But what it really uncovered was something I personally have known about for a long time time and often people don't want to address it because uh, the solution seems too difficult but our athletes are underfunded our Olympic athletes and our Paralympic athletes um, relative to pro sport so that's part of the perception in the community is that when you say athletes they're all like a rugby league player or an AFL player and, and they're completely looked after for, for our Olympic athletes there's no uh, financial security there's no superannuation there's no sick pay there's that they're the grant money is assessed every six months and we, the survey found that 60% of our athletes are living on about $23,000 a year with, with work money included in that. Minimum wage is $39,000. So we have, if we're going to be successful in 2032 with the opportunity of a home Olympic, something has to be done. And you touched on this just before. I wouldn't mind asking you to enlighten, it, uh, enlighten us on it, Nat. Obviously, the physical side of things and, and peaking is something the athletes are well-versed in, but the mental side of it, even just to get to the start line here in Japan with everything going on. You fear that out the other side of the Olympic Games that might manifest itself in unprecedented ways? The AIS, the Australian Olympic Committee, all hands on deck especially for the quarantine. So our athletes have to come back into quarantine for two weeks and whether they're sitting in that hotel room by themselves with a medal around their neck or not, um, it's going to be very, very challenging for them all. So there's programs put in place around during quarantine but also as they come out of that, how they really come to terms with this five-year cycle. What are they going to do? Paris is short. Paris's cycle is now shortened. Do they go on? Do they stop and go in a different direction in their life? And they've been holding on, keeping themselves strong. We often see our athletes as like 10 foot tall and bulletproof and superhuman. They're really just normal people with everyday challenges, if not tougher challenges, because they're under this dream, excruciating pressure to perform and deliver a result. We're going to see all the tears. We're going to see all the, the frustrations. We're going to see all that come out. Hopefully we see everyone having the success they deserve as well. And the polling in Japan, that obviously the Japanese or the majority of them, according to recent studies, don't want the games to go ahead. Do you hold any concern over what sort of reception the athletes might receive over there? Difficult in a pandemic to say that this one could be blown out of proportion. Clearly the Japanese people are concerned. All I know is that the IOC and the Tokyo Organising Committee are doing everything they can to ensure there's not pressure put on the system, the health system over there, the local, to really be as quick as they can to get in and out and and deliver a game that over half the world's population can tune into as safely as they can. It's been five years since Rio. My daughter was born at the end of 2015. She's never seen an Olympics and I'm trying to hype her up to get ready to sit in front of the tally for two weeks. She's got no idea what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) Feel for the Japanese people. This is so important to the lives of the athletes and every athlete I speak to is just itching to get over there, compete and come home safe 
basically for for everyone. So fingers crossed we see the greatest Olympics we've ever seen from a human performance and a human resilience and a coming together and, and hope and light at the end of the tunnel because we will get through this as a, as a globe and we will get through this as a race and uh, hopefully the Olympics can bring some of that positivity as we all love to sit and watch Olympic sports every no. four, maybe five years. Yeah, indeed, very well said. Uh, Olympics aside for a moment, Nate, you live up in Brisbane, I think, these days and we touched on it off the top, but what's keeping you busy at the moment? I can't stop thinking about 2032 coming to Brisbane. I mean, yeah. I was very fortunate to play in a home games in Sydney and then, you know, I must have said all the right prayers and all my Christmases came at once to win a gold medal at home on Bondi Beach. Uh, to know what's ahead for a next generation of athletes with the thought of a home game and, and in my city uh, is keeping me awake at night. We've got a bit of work to do, but we're very, very close. So that's what keeps me busy. It also keeps, keep, how do we get keep our Olympic athletes and Paralympic athletes winning because it's getting harder and harder to win. More countries are putting more and more investment in. I believe 2032 is a great opportunity for, for us to not only up our athlete funding, but up our performance system funding and really bring more focus on Olympic and Paralympic sport. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Up next, our nipper on the beaches of far north Queensland caught the Olympic bug. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with Olympic gold medal winning beach volleyballer Natalie Cook. Nat, you're born in Townsville, January 1975, and you grew up on a heavy sport diet, didn't you? Yeah, breakfast, lunch and dinner and all <laughs> snacks. So I was uh, I was that naughty kid that just wanted to get out of the classroom and play every sport. I liked the variety. I was a swimmer. I rode BMX. I loved athletic. Um, I don't know if any of the listeners back in that era played the game you know these were just sporty games called fly or force of backs with a tennis ball and then you're jumping over thongs on the ground I just love being out and about sport and uh, swimming was my main sport because my mum was an infant swim teacher and I grew up in sporting pedigree because dad was a semi-professional football player for Crystal Palace it was back in the 60s a long yeah, time right. ago but but I did definitely grow up around sporty spice so I was in the jeans of course and I guess Nat people like you don't tend to get to where they get to without a spark, without a fire being lit inside them and, and a big moment where I guess you, you start to form a lifelong focus. What did that look like for you? It, it's often, it's so clear and it's often one small thing. So I still remember the day sitting in front of the TV in Townsville watching the 1982 Commonwealth Games in Brisbane. Yeah. I was eight years old, right? And I sat there and watched Lisa Curry win the 100 metres freestyle and she put a tracksuit on, she got a gold medal around her neck, she was crying, singing Advanced Australia and at eight I said I want to do that and I was swimming I was a little swimmer at the time of course history has that I changed sports but I just so when we talk about Tokyo the kids that are going to be watching the TV and watching all the range of sports there's going to be a whole generation there that gets sparked for the 32 Olympics and that's what is so exciting. Take us back to the moment where volleyball and how volleyball actually entered your life for the first time now. Well we moved from Townsville to Brisbane dad got a, a trans in his job and I had to find a new swimming pool. Ironically, I landed in a pool in Corinda with Kieran Perkins and his coach, John Carew. Right. Um, at the time,
time. And I, I went to Corinda High. I really didn't like the new environment of pool to school, school to pool, pool to bed, bed to pool, right? It was literally this treadmill. I didn't like the black line. I started to smell like chlorine at school. No one would sit next to me because I smelled <laughs> like chlorine. So I, I thought I really got to change sport and I went on a quest. I played, like my PE teacher loved me because I participated in the school swimming carnival, the school track and field carnival, like every, from shot put to javelin to hurdles to the walker to the, to the 3K. I did everything. And netball, basketball, tennis, I rode a skateboard. I did martial arts. And at one point I remember my mum saying I went to her and I said mum mum I want to play water polo and I remember her going no for the first time she's like you're not playing water polo you played you're playing enough sport so water polo was probably the only sport I didn't get a, a good crack at and from there at school, at Corinda High School, there was a notice on the a notice board that said volleyball trip to Canada and America. And my little eyes lit up and I, I immediately went, that's where Disneyland is. And I raced upstairs to the PE department and I said, what volleyball? And that's how, that's how I started. And I fell in love with it from there. Did you get to Disneyland? I did. I still have that map of Disneyland on my um, my bedroom in my parents' home, that five minutes down the road. And and I just, ironically though, this is an interesting piece uh, to the story, even if I do say so myself, volleyball was the only sport I couldn't play. So I actually fell in love with the challenge and trying to understand. I mean, if you remember Sam back at school, you'd play in grade eight, balls were hard, your arms hurt, and no one could get the ball to go where they wanted it to go. <laughs> and I thought I would go home and think, why can't I play this? And why can't anybody play volleyball? There's got to be something to it. And I spent the next 25 years trying to work it out. Well, it didn't take 25. It only took a few more years and you were the captain of the Australian Indoor Junior Team, 1992. You're only 17. And I think it's the same year you're finishing school just for good measure. I mean, that's a full plate for a 17-year-old, isn't it? Yeah, I really... Um, as a straight-A student, I was the ducks of the school. Like I said, people hated me because I smelled like chlorine, but I think they had a little bit of envy that I sort of was teacher's pet and good at sport and good at school. Well, but some, really people focused... are just, some people are just good at everything, aren't they? <laughs> well, I, don't, I, I think I got got it from my grandfather who I was chasing his love by every time I'd see him he would ask me if I won so I, I, I must have as a young kid worked out that if I won he would love me more so it drove me to win it was this really interesting revelation and so it was like I couldn't let granddad down and so that's what drove my wanting to be the best and and I guess to be an Olympic athlete, you have to have a little bit of that obsessive, compulsive, neurotic behaviour, which was making sure I, I I didn't overtrain. I was never a go to a lot of training, but when I was at training, I made sure it was the best I could be. So I was doing volleyball. I was still playing golf. I, I grew up playing golf with Kari Webb. She's she's airborne. Yeah. Um, not airborne, airborne, yep, yep. but from air. Yeah. <laughs> in North Queensland, which was an hour down the road from us. So. I played a bit of golf. There was a sliding door moment where my volleyball coach said, don't come to training all day Saturday and all day Sunday. We can't pick you in the team. We've got to be fair. You've got to participate in training. I was 17. And I said, well, I play golf on a Saturday morning, so I can't come till one o'clock. And he said, well, sorry, you can't make the team. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to play golf. And two weeks, I went to play golf. The next two Saturdays, I didn't go to volleyball. He called me after two weeks and said, 
we'll see you after golf. So uh, I guess that was a moment where my life could have been different. And if he hadn't have um, changed the rules, laxed the rules, then I wouldn't have gone back to volleyball. Yeah. And academically, you mentioned the ducks of the school at Corinda State High earlier in 1992. It was a passion for medicine, wasn't it? Yeah, I really, again, that's another story. Medicine was the highest, as we know. It's the highest grade school you have to get to get into it. So that's what I put on my, at the time, the form. But I really wanted to be a physiotherapist. Mm. I wanted, Dad was a rugby league watcher. So he turned from a soccer player fan to rugby league. And I would watch, um, nowadays it's Alan Langer for, for Queensland, run out there and put a magic sponge on top of the, the footy player and the footy player would stand back up. I'm like, wow. I said to Dad, what's that? And Dad said, that's a physio. I said, I'll be a physio. That's what I'll do. I'll hold, I'll hold the magic bucket. I'll run out there and I'll fix the footy player. So I, I ended up taking medicine off and putting physiotherapy. I got two years through my physiotherapy degree and I realised um, that I'd be a much better patient than a physiotherapist. Yeah, and you obviously put that degree on hold in the end. Now, I wanted to ask you, coming back to the volleyball, what took you from the court? out onto the sand? Well, beach volleyball was really just social hobby sport. Um, volleyball was the main sport that we grew up on. And then, um, ironically, in 1993, Juan Antonio, Juan Antonio Samaranch said, the winner is Sydney. <laughs> and that sort of changed the game. And, and in the same year after that announcement, they announced beach volleyball in the Olympics for the first time ever mm. in 1996. So it gave a three-year window to make its debut. And at that time, that would have made me... So I was 21 at my first Olympics in Atlanta. So back in 93, beach volleyball became a bit more serious because now it was going to get a spot on the Olympic roster. Uh, and some of the girls, the older girls playing indoor volleyball decided to go and have a go at, at beach. They paved the way a little bit and then they got a bit serious and there were two good, good players. One was Anita Palm from Bundaberg and one was Jackie Vacosa from Sydney. They were playing together and they split up and they went on a hunt, a nationwide search for a, for a taller, younger athlete that they were going to play with to go to the first Olympics and Anita Palm was the one that found me and um, she said she came and watched an indoor volleyball tournament at a QE2 stadium in Brisbane and she watched probably 200 volleyball kids and she came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you want to move to Sydney and train with me to go to the Olympics? So ironically, I said no. My first response, Sam, was, was no because I had to get my physiotherapy degree because Dad had said, look, there's no money in beach volleyball. I mean, he was right. All we won, all you could win was a water bottle and a hat back then um, he said you've got to get your physio degree so that when when you get injured or you don't win or all of these reasons he said you've got a career so I said look I'm still young I'm only at that time I was 18 17 um, and, and I said I'm still young I'll go to the next one so, you know go and find someone else and she I sort of two or three weeks later I rolled out of bed one morning and kicked myself and said this is the dream this is what I saw Lisa Curry do on TV I can do this and and I called her back and said is there still a spot um, which ironically there's only two of you right so she could have filled that spot and she could have said to me again sorry I found someone else and she said no I haven't filled it I still want to play with you can you move to Sydney in two weeks and I did lovely not a bad Juan Antonio impersonation either I might add <laughs> I, I'm, I'm keen to know though Nat um, how physically how much more demanding is the sand to the court well you might have to have an indoor player debate it with me but if I I'll tell you that um, sand is much more taxing on the muscles the indoor is much more taxing on the joints right because yep. of the hard so we 
if, if you imagine going to the beach, walking from the boulevard, the boardwalk to the water, how hard that is, mm. and do that for three hours a day, 20 years of your life, it's kind of a, a bit of overuse. Just the joint now have started to pack it in a little bit, but mostly muscular, the hard work traveling through the sand. Yeah, yeah, fair enough too. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll be back with Natalie Cook right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with five-time Olympian and Sydney 2000 gold medalist Natalie Cook. Nat, when and how did you meet Kerry Potast? Yeah, that was uh, um, amazing. So you heard Anita Palm and I started the journey together. I moved to Sydney. I trained with Anita. And then sort of one of those things where two of you together all the time, some things just didn't go right. Uh, I was a lot younger. She had a, a different um, life, was married, and we just didn't quite hit it off. So the chemistry is so important for beach volleyballers. Um, and Kerry Pothouse was playing with somebody else. Her name was Annette. And, and we would play against each other all the time. So when I split up with Anita, we were, we were the number one team at the time. I went to Kerry and I did what Anita did to me. I tapped her on the shoulder and said, Kerry, you want to play? <laughs> and so this is all, you know, just at the beach, you're watching the waves, you're in your bikini, you've got your tail wrapped around your waist. And, and that's how it, it started. And she, it took her a while to make the decision. Traditionally, you played with a taller player and a shorter player. And Kerry and I were the first combination in the world where we were both tall and and we decided that that was going to be our secret source game plan um, because otherwise what happens is the little player at the, at the back is at the back and the big player is at the front doing what we call the blocking. So if I was the block, if I was the one serving as a tall player, I would have to run nine metres through the sand to get to the net before I jumped. I thought, Kerry, you're there. You just why don't you just jump and I'll just stay back here? So we really revolutionized revolutionized the game on a few instances and, and that was one of them. So we, we had a great chemistry. Sometimes we didn't get along. Like it's just like any kind of relationship. Uh, we would fight about things. But overall, uh, an amazing combination and the best sort of eight years of my volleyball career. Yeah, because you mentioned age gaps and Kerry was what, 10 years your senior, I think? Or is 10 yeah, years? Yeah, 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, she, I'm not catching her no. either. No. <laughs> That. <laughs> Indeed. Um, 10 years, which is why ultimately we uh, she retired and, and we split up mm. because she wanted to get on with life and have a family. Uh, ironically, that when that when she did stop, life changed for her and she ended up coming back. So I did get another tap on the shoulder saying, hey, I want to make a comeback. Do you want to play with me again? And I said, oh, it was one of those tough decisions. I said, no, I think I should stay with the, the young one I've got now because we could go to a few more Olympics. <laughs> and that was probably, I don't know, it's one of those, if I could regret anything, it would be regretting not playing with Kerry again to defend our gold medal. But I still had a wonderful time with Nicole and we came fourth in Athens. We were very close. An injury kept us out of the medals, but Mm. that's life and uh, you can't get it right all the time. Just rewinding a fraction, obviously you go to Atlanta 96 with Kerry, as we say, and then that same year you took, I think, silver at the World Champs and you were first in a World Tour event in, in Japan and all did seem well, but then... 
you did split up for a time before coming together again for Sydney 2000. I mean, why did you split up at that point in time? Yeah, well, I was probably all nice and politically correct when I said we got along well. There was a moment there where we didn't. And uh, when you come off a bronze medal and you sit down and you do your business plan and you, you know, your performance plan and you think, well, of course, if you come third, next time you want to come yeah. first. And, and ironically, people say, oh, it's two steps up the podium. I said, actually, it's one because the, the podium, the number one spot is in the middle. So you only got to get up one spot. <laughs> and, and so all of these tiny little twists on everything make it fun and engaging. And so Kerry and I were going to, we were going to go and win everything. And of course it didn't happen. 1997, I had a, a quad injury. And when you're injured as a beach volleyball player, your partner sits out too. So you don't often put a reserve in, or back then, now they would replace um, the partner for a period of time. But back then there weren't enough traveling. People didn't have enough money to just come and play for two weeks. So Kerry would have to sit out with me. So she sat out for half a season. We didn't win. We were struggling a little bit. And so she said, look, I think it's better if I go and play with someone else. I said, okay, good luck to you. So she she did. She went and played with someone else. She was very successful. But it's like anything, Sam, when you... You don't know what you've got until you leave. And how did you and, how did you repair it though? How did you get back together before Sydney? Well, it, it a bit of fate. My partner, the new partner I had, um, got injured, and Kerry's partner was carrying a little bit of an injury, and so she sort of. I got a phone call. I was sitting in South Africa doing an exhibition. She was in America, and I get a. And back then we didn't have Zoom or FaceTime or any of this cool stuff. It was a legitimate landline on one of those things called a telephone on the wall. A dog and bone. And yeah, yeah, dog and bone. And she said, oh, Kerry. I said, oh. I said, how'd you find me? She said, oh, I tracked you down. And she said, do you want to play with me again? And I, I almost dropped the phone because sitting next to me is the player I'm playing with. Oh. And and so you got to take a bit of that offline. And in the end, I, I sort of said no. And then we, we saw each other in France a week later and our partners got a little bit injured. I said, right, it's fate. Let's go back together. And once we got back together, we were so focused on the purpose, which was winning. We were so committed to doing what it took to win, even if our relationship needed work. And we had to stop blaming each other. We had to back each other in. We had to support each other. We had to have compassion and empathy and all of those things that are quite challenging when you're with each other 24 hours a day, right? So it, it became a big personal development growing for us both and really, really powerful. And ultimately, that's why we won. We were the most, we were the team that had been through the most and stuck together. Our biggest opposition, the US, had so many players that they could choose from that they would often swap and change every other week. Whereas Kerry and I had to go through it together. And we had to come out the other side. And I think going through some of those hard times makes your performance even better. I'm fascinated by this point of your career and Kerry's as well. You, you've reunited and then the, the path, the build up to Sydney 2000. So you hired a full-time coach. It is said that you hired a, a, a success coach too. I mean, how does get one of these? How do you get one of these? This is amazing. <laughs> but his story, is it correct, Ashley, that the man that you entrusted with, I guess, getting you mentally prepared? Yeah, he, he was the one. It was after Atlanta. I and mean, these are the stories you don't hear behind the scenes. You just see that moment of, of us with a medal and, and the understanding of the capitulation of a semi-final. So a day before we win the bronze medal, we lost a game 15-3 to a Brazilian pair that we end, would end up playing again four years later in different combinations. And 
it was a mental implosion. It was nothing to do with physical volleyball skill. It was a, a fear, doubt, anxiety. But I was the only one that knew that, right? And I had to be honest with myself and I came off, off the court and I said, look, that was nothing to do with physical capability. I got afraid. I got scared. I, I started to think about what if we lost all the negative things. And I went on the search to, to kind of fix that. Not that the right word's fixed, but to find a way to bolster my mental resilience. And I was sitting, so I went to every course and every beat there was a guy called Curic and it was called the fire walk adventure the hour of power and I'm like oh that sounds interesting maybe if I walk on fire I can be you know super mentally robust so I sat in a little tiny room in the suburb of Wool and Gabba in Brisbane in 1997 and he gave this presentation now ironically he said no one remembers who comes second or third at the Olympics and, and remembering I just come third 1996 I just come third he didn't know who I was he didn't know I, he had an Olympian in the room and I sat in the front row kind of fuming going initially getting mad at him and then going you're absolutely right if I ask you now who came third in Sydney or who came third even in Rio you you probably couldn't tell me and so after that moment I went up to him and I said Curic my name's Natalie Cook you won't remember me because I came third at the Olympics and he he kind of backpedaled and he started sweating and he's trying to find the words to cover himself and I said I totally get it you're 100% right I'd like you to join my team now I had no money I didn't know how I was going to pay this bloke lucky to join my team and help me get the gold medal in four years three years time in Sydney uh, to which he said, okay, let's go down to the coffee shop and let's write the plan. And I said, oh, well, we're three years away. We don't really need to do that now. And, and he said, no, that's where you're wrong. He said, if you want something in your life, you have to take immediate action. So we're going to go now and we're going to write the plan. I said, oh, all right. So this was the success coach the first day of my success coaching. And he said, I said, oh, I don't have any money. I need you for three years. I need you to like give up your, I need you to volunteer. (laughs) (laughs) Try try telling an American that he needs to volunteer for a beach volleyball team. So (laughs) we came up with some understanding. He he basically said, I'm prepared to do it for you for nothing. If you, if if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to fine you $5,000 every time which because I was a straight A student and a teacher's pet and I was really good at doing what I was told I was I'm like happy days that's easy I'm really good at being told what to do and I'm really good at doing what I'm told so he stayed he was with me for sort of four years and and was a huge part of the success of of the Sydney Games fire walking glass walking parachuting blindfolded rock climbing affirmations visualizations breathing all of those things uh it, it was part of the journey that made it so great I can't believe he convinced you to go fire walking and walk over broken glass and, and the the walking on the hot coals now you did it together you and Kerry like, almost like I guess the idea is on the sand you had to be there for each other and here you were there for each other over the hot coals. Yeah, and I'd taken up that journey when Kerry was playing with someone else. So Kerry was kind of watching me go through this. I'd do my fire walking by myself first. And then <laughs> when we got back together, she she sort of said, look, I've been watching you and you've grown up a bit. So, you know, I guess you're good enough now to come back to me. Um, <laughs> that, that, that was kind of how I read it. Probably not what she said. But when she came back, I said, fine, you just got to fire walk with me. And she's like, no, 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 no. That was okay for you. I don't need to do this. And then I said, well, you've got to have Curic. Curic then stepped in and said, not only, Kerry, are you going to firewalk, but you're going to do it together at the same time because, like you said, you're dependent on each other. And if one goes, both of you have to go. So he literally had 
two lanes of fire, coals. Well, they're burning hot coals. They're not like fire flames. But if you put a piece of steak on it, you cook your steak and you cook your egg. And, and he had Kerry in one line and me in the other line. And he stood at the back and he said, I'm going to say go. And when I say go, you lock hands and you go. You can't hesitate. And, and that's really what it's about. Once the whistle blows, once that moment of momentum or you've got the opportunity to take the gold medal, because those opportunities can be taken from you as easily as they appear. He said, once I say go, you lock hands and you go. And so you had no no opportunity to say, I'm not ready or not yet, or can I have a breather or it was just go. So that moment together was quite, so anytime we then high-fived or low-fived, it was like locking hands to go. And I guess, Nat, this is about achieving the impossible, isn't it? I guess breaking down barriers, which which on the sand for you and Kerry was the Brazilians, wasn't it? And, and on Bondi Beach, the Sydney Games, you probably did what you thought for a time was impossible and you beat the number one ranked side in the world to the gold medal. Yeah, ultimately, that's how Kirik explained the firewalk. He said, you stand in front of it and you think this is impossible, I'm going to burn my feet and you do it anyway because you've got this compulsion and you pulled through with energy and, and you get to the other side and you turn around and you, and you think, I thought that was impossible and it really wasn't. So what else in my life, um, enter Brazilian team, do I think is impossible that really isn't? So it really broke down the, the perceptions that this Brazilian team was almighty and all-powerful and, and unbeatable, which when you go back to the stats, we before we went into Sydney, we'd played them 17 times and only beaten them once. Wow. And that's what we were trying. You can't overcome that by playing them again and losing again. It's like it's like playing, you know, Djokovic and you never win 15 times and you go out 16 times. It's like what's going to be different, right? It's not about tennis. There is something more and it wasn't about volleyball. It was about building this internal belief and confidence and power that is very difficult to articulate and it's very difficult to articulate what it's like to stand on top of a podium and the clarity in that is only there when you when you kind of go through it yourself it's it's a pretty amazing thing oh it looked amazing and really powerful scenes down on the beach obviously during the uh, presentation and the and the gold medal and there were tears were shed and then kathy freeman had to go and ruin it all by winning gold that night oh. and stealing the show didn't she nat oh like my like 21 years I've carried that and uh, you had to bring it up um, no 25th of September it's called the golden day it was very special because yep. Kathy Freeman won we were famous for four hours <laughs> right and, and I'll take every single minute of those four hours but it was it was something very special to give Kathy the credit of winning the 100th gold medal for Australia. Now, if Terry and I hadn't won 99, she would have Kathy Freeman 99th gold medal. It just would not have sounded good, Sam. So I'm very, she, she thanks me every day, I'm sure, in all of her speeches. But Kathy, you're welcome. In case you're listening, you are welcome. And I, I actually had a ticket. I had two tickets that I'd bought in the ballot. So the other thing, as Olympians, we have to buy our ticket. You do have the capacity to maybe get some leftovers if you stand in line in the village to get some leftover tickets. But to get a ticket to a Blue Ribbon event event like that would have been very difficult. So I bought them, not knowing that we would be on the same day. And I ended up giving them to two randoms at a bus stop. Oh, wow. So anyone want to go to anyone from Bondi? I said, you got to get from Bondi to Homebush. But I got two tickets to Kathy Freeman. Knock yourselves out. So I don't know who got them. I hope they had a good time. We were too busy celebrating at Bondi Iceberg, pouring beer 
and pouring anything else we could all over everybody with our bikinis over the top of our jeans, Sam. That was our that was our what a look. 25th of September golden night. It was a classic. What a look. A gold medal and a good deed. What a day that is. We're talking to Natalie Cook on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. The gold medal, of course, was a crowning moment, but Nat wasn't done. Far from it. There were three more games to get to. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Natalie Cook is our guest today. Nat, Kerry, she retired shortly after the 2000 Olympics. Did you know it was coming? I did. I knew that she was ready for a next phase in her life. And you often hear athletes say, I want to retire when they're on top. You know, it's pretty hard to top that experience. Um, So she retired and and I went on to find a new partner, Nicole Sanderson. Uh, But ironically, like I said, she came back. So she wanted to go. She had a a little bit missing. She had a little, you know, tickle in the the soul that Mm. she wanted to play again in Athens. And so she came back. She asked me to play. I thought about it quite deeply and then decided to stay with Nicole Sanderson. And she went on to qualify in the second spot in the Olympics. And ironically, history will show we, we played each other and uh, we knocked her out. So she, she doesn't like that too much, but I try not to rub it in. Um, we knocked her out. One day we woke up for the quarterfinals. We were staying in the same apartment. We had our own rooms. Uh, and underneath the door, we woke up in the morning and underneath the door was a slip of paper that our coach had put in to tell us who we were playing and what time because we didn't know the night before. And it read Kerry Potthouse and Summer Lockowitz, who, who Summer Lockowitz is a Townsville girl and played beach volleyball because of Kerry and I. Mm. Um, so that the legacy is is amazing. But so we had to play Kerry and Summer in the quarterfinals, and um, Nick and I won that to progress on. And you did progress on. You made the semi-final rounds, but you ultimately fell out of medal contention in the end in Athens. Tell us about the shoulder injury, uh, Nat, and the part that it played in in this Olympic Games for you. Yeah, it was a real case of trying to understand the body and what the body could do I had a physio say to me and ironically I wanted to be a physio remember so I've got a physio now consulting me on my Olympic Games future and she said to me "Um, you've got it's like you've got a jar of M&Ms and every time you spike or swing your arm at the ball you take out an M&M and and she looked at me and said and we don't know how many M&Ms are in the jar right and so, so it was a case of, we don't know how many swings you've got left. We don't know when that thing's going to snap off. We can give you painkillers. We can treat it. We can loosen the muscles, but, but we don't know. So the question then becomes is, do you protect it and not swing and wait until you need it? But then, you, then you're not prepared because you need to have that preparation going into the game. So it became an interesting, I got all the way through to the semifinal. And in hindsight, I probably held back too much in the semifinals, um, saving myself in case we got into the final. And we lost to Brazil and we were in the bronze medal and I gave it everything I had. And halfway through the first set, the tendon came off the bone. I ran out of M&M, Sam. So yeah. 
the ten the tendon pulled off the bone. I played left handed in an Olympic final as a right hander, which is never a good look. <laughs> and um, and the American team uh, beat us, so they won the bronze medal, and we went to drug testing. And I said to the drug tester, I said, "Did you just see what happened? Then we did not win. So maybe you should test them." Uh, and not test me and I sat in drug testing for probably an hour and as I came out of drug testing it's probably the hardest day of my Olympic career as I came out of drug testing the podium was being presented with the medals so I had to watch stand there respectfully um, clap for my opponents which I did and then uh, go and cry in a heap in the corner for about two days and yet the old saying what is it you're a long time retired you somehow get yourself up for beijing 2008 <laughs> i mean I, I can't get my head around this so and then you, you go back um for more at london 2012 at the age of 37 i mean no regrets i'd imagine because i mean do you sit here now and just know that you squeeze the lemon dry i, I absolutely not only just squeeze it dry i put it in the dehydrator <laughs> i framed it i pressed it i you know like like I got all the way. I probably did out um, stay a bit long and out. What is it called? What's the word? Outstayed my welcome. Yeah. Or, or when you get kicked out of home, you know. I, I stayed too long. I Nicole and I. Nicole ended up having surgery as well. We had a year off, two thousand and five, and I ended up coming back and she needed another operation, so I had to move on. Um, I found Pam's and she was Barnett at the time. She then got married before the London Olympics and became Inchley. So it was the same person, Tamsin, but I played my last two with her and she was like the perfect beach volleyball specimen. I thought oh, she can carry me if I get, you know, too tired or too old. She was a thoroughbred. She was tall and strong and a workhorse. And uh, we went to Beijing. We had a Brazilian coat and, and he was amazing. I'd had a change from my coach, Steve Anderson, that I was with for the first Olympics. And it was a, a great experience, but we finished fifth. We lost to a Brazilian team. Um, seems to be the story of my life. Brazil or America were the, were the big opponents. But we lost to Brazil. And the girl that beat me, her name was Renata. And in Brazil, they pronounce it Hanata. She said, after we won, within 10 minutes, she came over to me and she said, I just need to thank you because I loved your book. Oh, wow. And, because I'd, ri- I'd written a book and yeah. she'd read my book. And and I think it was kind of a glint in her eye that said, your book just taught me how to beat you. <laughs> so, so that was a little bit like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have written that book. But um, she was great. They went on to finish fourth. We'd finished fifth. And Tamsin, I said to Tamsin, I need a year off to determine whether I'm going to go again. And she said, that's fine. I need a year off because I'm pregnant. I said, okay, this is great. So we both had a year off. She had a baby. I sat in the 2010 um, opening ceremony of the Vancouver Winter Olympics as a spectator, watching the Australian athletes march out. And I tears came down my eye, my face. And I said, I got one more in me. I'm a long time retired. All those things you talked about. I can do this one more time for that moment. And I called her and said, let's go again. So we spent we spent a couple of years training together after she had a baby. It was very challenging and a new way of qualifying for the Olympics for me. It was a new generation coming, a new era. Uh, but I was very proud of, of qualifying for my fifth Olympic game. Oh, I love it. And look, while you probably would have wanted more at the back end, and who wouldn't, I mean, I love the fact that you just left it all out there. And going back to the hot coals and the fire walking, I think you quote a man by the name of Frederick Wilcox, who famously said, progress always involves risk. And you were always prepared to risk it for the biscuit, as the kids say these days. I was, and I'm very familiar with the biscuit because that's what 
Bluey says, oh, biscuits or dad says in Bluey. So with a five-year-old daughter now, <laughs> yeah. my next chapter of my life, her and I have very much big Bluey conversations. And Bluey actually plays a game called Keepy Uppy, which is really mm. volleyball. So for all those kids, I've got to thank Bluey because he's just creating a new generation of volleyball players with balloon volleyball. So it, it absolutely was the highlight of my life uh, clearly when people say what's your greatest moment it was standing on top of an olympic podium at home uh, with friends and family around and being on the back of a stamp or on the front of a stamp having people lick the back of your head making kathy freeman famous and uh and going to five olympic games is in my blood i absolutely was bitten by the the green and gold malaria mosquito and uh i just I just love everything the Olympics stands for. And I hope this next generation of kids with a 2032 Olympic potential just thrive on it and get excited by watching Tokyo. It'll just be the greatest thing. Oh, Natalie Cook, what a life you've lived. It's been a journey. I mean, it's been a journey of self-discovery. And and while the tangible things like gold medals and Olympic Games are great, I guess the intangibles have proven just as powerful along the way. Uh, Well done on all you achieved and all you continue to achieve. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sam. One more thing. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.